Won't you pray with me, please? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this day that you've blessed us with, a time and an opportunity for us to be together, to celebrate together, and to give you worship. So God, I ask that as we open your word, as we talk about a story that's probably familiar to many of us here, Lord God, I pray that you would help us to see it with new eyes, help us to listen, help us to have open hearts, that we may take what we learn here, what we hear here, and give you praise and honor and glory as we leave from here. We love you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So I uh, was really excited about getting ready this morning. Got up pretty early, and not really that early at all now that I think about it. My wife let me sleep in, which was nice. But we were out on time. We were getting ready. Everything was good. My, my two-year-old was good to go. My wife was ready to go. We were out the door on time, ready to go. And I pushed the little key fob on, on, you know, your key fob thing to open the car door, and nothing happened. I thought, well, the battery must be dead in it. That happens sometime. I'll go and get the other key fob. Go grab the other key fob, come back to the car, push it again. Nothing happens. That means something more serious is going on. My wife from the house goes, maybe the battery's dead. Yep. So we have to figure out a way to get into the car, which we finally do because everything's running off the battery. And I go to get the jumper cables out of the 98 Toyota Avalon that will not die, despite my best efforts to kill it off. All the new car we have is fine, but, but the 98 just keeps going. Put the jumper cables on it, crank it up. Even the jump didn't work. The battery was so dead that it just wouldn't, it wouldn't start at all. So then we have to do the, the laborious process of moving my daughter's car seat from the Mazda into the 98 Toyota Avalon, and we ride in style to church, running just a few minutes behind. Despite our best efforts to control everything this morning, we were still a few minutes late. Despite all of our energy and effort, getting out on time, getting ready, I even changed my suit. I didn't like the one I had on. I'm vain, and I I'd switched to another one. We still were on time until the one thing that I couldn't control. And it was frustrating. It was disappointing. Probably many of you probably had similar frustrations happen to you this morning as well. And I find that if we look at life, a lot of our life is met with frustration because we're trying to control the things around us. We're trying to control the environment around us so that our life is comfortable, so that it's secure, so that it's smooth. And oftentimes we just run into challenge after challenge, threat after threat to our comfort and our security. We leverage a lot of what God has given us, our gifts, our talents, our abilities, our resources, to make sure that we're happy and comfortable. But maybe 2019 doesn't need to be that way. Maybe 2019 can be a year where we leverage our gifts to something greater. We're moving through the colors of Christmas, and today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. And the Colors of Christmas series, we started with blue. We talked about how depression is something that happens to many of us this time of year. We talked about red and how red is a color of passion. We need to have passion for Christ. And then green, we talked about gold, growth. And white, we talked about purity. And today we're talking about gold. Gold is typically the color of gifts. It's going to be one of the gifts that we read about today. I want us to talk about how we might leverage our gifts for the glory of God this year. 
So let's jump in, like I said, to a passage that's probably familiar to many of you. And the first thing I think you'll see is that we can use our gifts to honor the king. We can use our gifts to honor the king. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. So the wise men come from another part of the world to Jerusalem uh, to worship the king. And it makes sense that they would go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the traditional capital. They figure if a king was to be born, the king would be born there. And when it says worship, worship is used a number of times throughout this passage. It's not the same kind of worship that we think of. Worship in the Greek is a little bit more flexible. We think of worship as something you offer to a deity or you offer to God, and that's one way that it can be used. In this case, it's something that's being used to pay homage to a social superior. So you would worship a king, you would worship a queen, you would give them honor because they were of a higher standing than you were. So the wise men don't have a concept that Jesus is actually divine, at least I don't think so. I think they're just there to honor a social superior, and in the time they believed that kings and queens were appointed by God. So there's a a worship element to it. And so when we think about coming and honoring God, when we think about gifts that we can offer, we can use our gifts to honor God. We can use our gifts to worship Him. And many of the same gifts that the wise men used, we can use as well. Because when we read this passage, we think to ourselves, yeah, they brought gold, they brought frankincense, and they brought myrrh. Great. But they use more than just physical materials to honor the king. One of the things they use, and one of the things that we can use, is expertise. We have expertise. Let's go back and read the first couple verses again. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him." Now, the wise men go by another title. What's one of the other titles we use? We use kings, and we also call them magi, right? A a singular term is magus, in case you didn't know that. Uh, It's magi, yeah. And so magi was a generic term by the time we get to Jesus' day to talk about uh, wise men, counselors, people that were experts and trusted advisors to kings and lords and rulers and things like that. The wise men were professionals. They were experts in their field. Now, we wouldn't consider them to be experts in their field because what they did wasn't entirely scientific, not entirely. They did study the movements of the heavens. They did track the movements of the stars. And so in that way, there was a science behind what they did. But then they would take the movements of the stars and they would assign spiritual or divine importance to it. So what happened with Jesus' birth, a star appeared in the sky. Now, we don't really know what the star was. There's reports of possibly a supernova taking place, and that's what they saw. It's also possible that uh, Jupiter and Saturn were moving closely together and another star behind it, and it made kind of a superstar uh, that would not like uh, uh, other superstars that we think of today, but like a superstar. And it would have been something that would have been very visible uh, to us uh, at the time. It could have just been a divine miracle that took place. But whatever it is, they took note of it, and they were following it, and they bring their talent and expertise to bear in order to honor the king. They're experts in their field. They know astronomy, and they know that this is special, and they follow it. It leads them. We have expertise as well. We have expertise as well. Everybody in this room has something that you're good at, 
Maybe it came from your education. Maybe you're a gifted accountant or a gifted businessman or engineer. You're gifted in medicine. You have a gifting that way that you can use to bring glory to God. Maybe it comes from your talents. Maybe you're gifted musically. You're good at singing. It's not something you do professionally, but it's something that you give to the church. Maybe you're good at art or you're good at teaching. You're good at business. And you don't use those professionally, but you just have a talent for them. Maybe it's something you're passionate about. Maybe you like playing games. I love playing games. Maybe you like to play sports or you know sports really well. That's a gift, a talent, a passion that you have. Maybe you're passionate about cooking. You can use those things to bring glory to God. We all have things that we do that nobody does quite like we do. And the kingdom of God needs that. And not just to come and if you're a gifted accountant for you to be on the finance committee, although that's important, but the kingdom of God, the church needs individuals who are good at what they do out in the working world doing what they do to show the world what Jesus Christ is like. You are needed out there and your gifts and your talents are needed out there. Notice how these wise men took their expertise and brought the attention of the stars to people that should have known that the king of kings was born. But it's these Gentiles that show up, and they're like, hey, you guys notice the big star up there? Yeah, that's important. And they're like, really? I didn't know that. It's important. It's significant. We also have emotions that we can use. We have emotions. We're going to skip over Herod. We're going to come back to him in a little bit. But move to verse 9. After listening to the king, that's King Herod, they, the Magi, went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place, that's the house, where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. There's actually four words to describe the emotions of the wise men at this point. Now, if you are familiar with the Bible, the Bible doesn't really waste a lot of time on colorful language. So they were really excited. The Greek literally translates, they reacted like teenage girls did to the Beatles in the 1960s. That's how pumped they were about finding this house. They were excited. And they used that emotion. Think about how emotional that must have been. They've been riding for a long time following this star, and they finally reach a point of success. Think about when you accomplish a project that gets done finally after many months or years of working on it. You're so excited. You're so relieved. You're satisfied. And that's what's happening here. Their faith had been rewarded. We live in a society that has mixed emotions or mixed feelings about emotions. Sometimes we're told to be very stoic and to, to button up our emotions. And if you're in an older generation, that's probably something that you heard a lot of. Maybe you heard as a child, children should be seen and not heard. And so you don't like to express your emotions very much. You suppress a lot of what you feel. You don't allow it to fuel your worship. You're very stoic. God has given us emotions to use and to express to give him glory. We are made in the image of God, and part of that image is to use our emotions. Men and women throughout Scripture have grieved and mourned in emotional ways. They've also rejoiced with exceedingly great joy in emotional ways. Jesus expressed all sorts of emotions throughout his time on earth. Emotions are good things, and the sad thing is there's not much that I can say to you today if you believe that emotions are something to be hidden, 
there's not much I can say to you to set you free from that. It's something that the Holy Spirit's going to have to unlock inside of you because it's probably been many years of you pushing it down and pushing it down and pushing it down. On the other hand, particularly if you're in a younger generation, we've been told, let your emotions go. Just let them rip. Do whatever you feel. Do whatever feels right. If it feels good, do it. That's okay. In fact, one pop celebrity said uh, uh, that you should not be ashamed of your emotions. She says, embrace your emotions and be proud of what you feel. Now, there's some truth there. You should be proud of, in some ways of your emotions. The problem is if our emotions are unanchored to something greater than themselves, our emotions just become self-serving. They become self-serving. Think about it. What's the difference between love and lust? The difference between love and lust is love is attached to something greater. It's attached to a relationship. It's attached to me committing myself to another person for their benefit as well as for my own. Lust is I just want you for me. What's the difference between righteous indignation and a temper tantrum? A temper tantrum is me being upset that I'm not getting what I want or need for me. Righteous indignation is looking at somebody else and being like, they're not getting what they want or need. Your emotions are not bad, but if they're not attached to something greater, they're destructive. The wise men's emotions were attached to their worship and the honor of this king who had been born. They didn't allow their emotions to run their life. They probably felt like quitting numerous times, but they didn't. Why? Because they were something greater that their emotions were attached to. So they used their emotions to worship and honor the king. Lastly, we have resources. We have resources. Look at verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense. But wait, there's myrrh. Sorry, couldn't help myself. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh were significant gifts to be given. Now, you've probably, if you've studied this passage before, you've heard at times that that maybe these have burial significance. That's possible. Let's not read too much into this. Essentially, these were gifts that were given that royal people, wealthy people would have had and they would have exchanged normally. This is like bringing somebody an iPhone. You know, like it's just something that people had at the time. One of the cool things that is going on here, these are similar gifts to what the Queen of Sheba brought to Solomon when he visited, when she visited him in 1 Kings chapter 10. And later on in the book of Matthew, Jesus says, one greater than Solomon is here. So Matthew might be doing a little something here to show you that, that Jesus is a son of David and to show you he's getting gifts like David's son did. That's a possibility. But regardless of what's going on, in order to show, to pay homage to a royal figure in that time, you gave him material gifts. You leveraged your time, you leveraged your resources, you gave him gifts. That's the way it's always been. But in our day and age, we don't necessarily attach to those two things. You have gifts, you have resources, you have money, you have talents, you have abilities. Brandon talked about that, Jeff talked about that in our video. Those are things that you can leverage to use to worship God and to give him glory. So is it giving money to the church? Yes, of course it is. Scripture backs that up. But many of you have really wonderful homes, really nice homes that have bedrooms in them that nobody ever sleeps in. You could open your home to people who maybe need a place to stay for a few days while they're in town visiting a sick relative. And rather than making them pay for a hotel, we could have people who open their lovely homes. You could host Bible studies for your connect group. 
Open your home. I believe as much as anybody that your home should be your castle in a place of solitude, but not all the time. Not all the time. Maybe you could use your business connections. Rather than forwarding your own career, you should work on advancing the careers of others. That's something you could do. So Travis, that's really great. You told me that I have expertise and I have emotions and I have resources that I can use, so why, what's the problem? Well, we don't always do that, do we? We don't always do that. Why? Well, we typically use our gifts to honor ourselves. We use our gifts to honor ourselves. Go back to verse 3. And when Herod the king heard this, he heard that the wise men were in town looking for the king of the Jews, he was troubled and all Jerusalem were troubled with him. The wise men weren't the only ones who start to search for Jesus. Now Herod's looking for him too. And it says that Herod is greatly troubled. Why is Herod troubled? We need to know a little something, something about Herod. Herod is incredibly insecure. It's because Herod is not actually Jewish. He goes by the title king of the Jews, so obviously if somebody else has a title king of the Jews, that's a threat to him. But his title was not given to him by the Jewish people. His title was given to him by the Romans, who believed that just because he was from Palestine, he was essentially Jewish. He wasn't. Ethnically, he was not Jewish. He wasn't Jewish religiously. And so the Jews did not consider him to be their king. And so he's insecure And his hold on his power is incredibly susceptible to somebody who has a legitimate claim to be king of the Jews, which anybody from David's line would have had that claim. So if somebody's being born who's the king of the Jews, guess what? That person is a threat to him. It's a threat. And so Herod seeks him out, not to worship him, not to honor him, but to neutralize him, to get rid of him. He used everything at his disposal to make sure that the world that was revolving around him continued to revolve around him. And we do the same things. And we use many of the same tools that Herod used. We use our power. We use our power. Look at verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Jerusalem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, You're by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So despite the fact that Herod's title seems like a nominal title, he still exercised quite a bit of power and influence. Notice how he assembles the chief priests and the scribes. Now this was probably the Sanhedrin or a portion of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the ruling council of of Israel as far as matters of religious importance. They're the ones that get together and decide to to first crucify Jesus. So the Sanhedrin is incredibly powerful and important. And one of the ways you know that you're a powerful person is if you call somebody who's a person of power and they come to you, you have more power than they do. So if the president calls me and wants to have lunch, he's not coming to meet me over here at Corner Bakery. I'm going to him probably because he has more power and influence than I do. I would also probably pick somebody different than, than uh, Corner Bakery. I'd probably go somewhere different than that. It's a good place, just eating with the president. <laughs> when you use your power, when we have, all have power that we can use, we all have power that we can use. Now, we don't like to use the word power because it's an icky word. It's like sex or money. We like to use euphemisms for it. We use words like leadership, influence, authority, but it's really just power. And power is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. God has power. 
God uses power to create. He speaks the world into existence. God uses power to rescue. He rescues Israel from Egypt. He rescues David from Goliath. He rescues us from our sins. God also uses power, and he will use it to recreate the heavens and the earth. Power is not a bad thing. We have power, too, and we use it to create. The problem is we don't use it to create in a way like God that honors him. We use power to create things that make sure the world revolves around us. One of these things is we create idols. We use wealth, fame, success, admiration, all of this stuff to make sure that we think of ourselves as some kind of little deity. And what we do is we disadvantage other people with it. And one of the ways that we disadvantage, one of the people we disadvantage, is we disadvantage Jesus Christ of his worship. Because we want people to worship us. We make idols. And we use our power that way. And we use our power this way for a reason. And it's because we don't really have faith. We don't really believe that Jesus has everything under control. The world is a scary place. And like Herod, we are insecure and terrified that somebody's going to come and knock us off our pedestal, that our way of life, the things that we're used to, are going to get taken away from us. And so we try and exert more and more control over the world. When my battery died this morning, I tried to exert more and more and more control over a car that was dead. I could not make that car go, despite how many times I pushed the ignition button over and over and over again. It didn't work. We're scared and we're insecure. So we use power this way because we don't have faith. So in your life, in your day-to-day, if you want to use power, sometimes you use it to control other people. If we can't sleep at night, what do we do? We take some sleeping pills, right? Because we're going to have control over our sleep. If you can't get up in the morning, if you can't get going in the morning, what do we use? We use coffee because i got to get going. i got to get moving. Again, there's nothing wrong necessarily with those things. But we want to be in control of everything, particularly things that have to do with our own bodies. We also use people. We also use people. Look at verse 7. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So this is a very specialized way of abusing power, using people. So Herod really couldn't trust the Sanhedrin with terms of astronomy and astrology because the Sanhedrin has mixed feelings about astrology. Some of them think it's evil, some of them think it's cool. So he went back to the wise men. He's like, all right, tell me exactly when you saw this star. Because Herod's doing some math. He's trying to figure out when exactly this baby was born so he can pinpoint where to send the people so that he can kill this rival. He doesn't want to know what the wise men knew for their sake to advance their goals to help them get where they needed to go. No, he's trying to advance his own goals. He's using his own, he's got his own goals and ideas in mind, and he's using people to further them. And as much as we hate to admit it, guess what? We probably use people too. We probably use people too. One of the people that you might not think that we use a lot of is our children. We use our children. Because their success reflects on our success. If my child is successful, then I'm a successful parent. Think about it. How many of you rock a, you don't have to raise your hand, please don't. You rock a, a, my child is an honor roll student at such and such an elementary. One, nobody rocks a bumper sticker that says, my child is failing math at such and such an elementary. <laughs> or even weirder than that, my, my neighbor's kid is, is, is an honor roll student at such and such an elementary, and I'm really proud of him. Nobody does that. 
And it's good. I mean, we should want our kids to be successful. Don't, don't get me wrong here. But I would be lying if every time somebody mentioned that my daughter seemed to be smart or seemed to be very articulate, and she's only two, I didn't swell with a little bit of pride and think, wow, Travis, you're doing a good job. Good job. When really it's the grace of God. It has to be. If you want to know, here's a good litmus test to know whether or not you, your children are for themselves or, or you use your children for success, your own success. When do you talk to other people about your kids? Do you only talk about them when they're doing well? And you kind of hide, you kind of sweep under the rug the fact that maybe they're struggling? Or do you talk about them all the time? That's a good indication of how we use our children. We also use our employees and our coworkers. Do you view your work as a place where people are meant to flourish or a place where you use people, get the most out of, you, out of them you can, and then throw them away? Work should be a place where people are allowed to flourish and use their talents and abilities to glorify God, not a place where we're trying to squeeze every last dime out of people, every last bit of energy. And this isn't just on a personal level. We do this on a societal level as well. We get really good at controlling people, at moving chess pieces. We've designed whole systems to keep me in power, to keep you in power, and to disadvantage other people. This is why racism is still a problem as we go into 2019. It's why sexism, sexual assault is still a problem as we go into 2019. It's why nationalism is still a problem. Because if I can convince you that there's something less than human about you because of the color of your skin or because of your gender or because of where you grew up, I have power and I can use you. And we have gotten really good at convincing people of this. And we've done it for so long that it's taking a really long, arduous time to undo the damage that we've done. The bottom line is we don't see people as gifts. We see them as resources to be used up and thrown away. And this is how Herod viewed people as well. Lastly, we use pretense. We use pretense. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child and when you found him, bring me word so that I too can come and worship him. Herod the Great had a penchant for covert operations and assassinations. This guy would have loved like the KGB or the CIA. He would have thought it was super cool to just do undercover stuff. That's how he wanted to operate. And why did he want to operate under this way? Because he knew that the people uh, that he ruled over didn't really like him that much. But people are easier to control if they like you. And so rather than marching into Bethlehem and just slaughtering everybody, which is what he winds up doing when this doesn't work out for him, he's going to do this secretly. He's going to do it under the table and still have an image that he's this nice, benevolent king. We like to put forward an image as well. We like to operate under pretense. We don't control people directly. We control them indirectly. We use manipulation like guilt, make people feel bad so that they'll do what we want them to do. We use third parties. We get people on our side to go against people that are not on our side. We use an image or an appearance. So if I look like I have it all together, if I look like I'm clean cut and I'm in control, then everybody will give me more power and more responsibility. I can use that to continue to cover up over my failings. And all of this is so that we continue to be the central element of our story, so that we can continue to honor ourselves because we don't think vulnerability is really a good thing when actually vulnerability is a great thing think about how god saved the world he saved it through a baby in a manger that's how jesus came to earth through the most vulnerable thing ever a baby in a stable 
we also worship a king who throughout history, throughout scripture, constantly takes things that are vulnerable and uses them to expose and bring down the strong. It happens over and over and over again, and yet we still believe that positions of strength without vulnerability are the best ways to go about doing it. It's not true. It's not true. Vulnerability is a gift, and it's one you can start giving in 2019. So what are we to do? Travis, you've told me I've got all these gifts, but you've also told me that I'm kind of a jerk and I use them all for myself. I didn't say you were a jerk. It was implied. (laughs) So what do we do? What do we do? Well, we have a king who has gifts as well, and his gifts honor us. The king's gifts have honored us. We don't realize this today because uh, we're in 2018 and there's been 2,000 years, but Matthew is a really good writer. And I know he's a good writer because he uses this little thing that I learned in ninth grade literature called foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. It's when you drop a little term and you bring it back up later as like this big reveal, okay? So in chapter 2, verse 2, the wise men do a little foreshadowing for us. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, if you don't know the story of Jesus, you're like, okay, so this is a story about a king, and he's going to build up a rebellion. He's going to overthrow Rome. Maybe he overthrows Herod because he appears to be really evil. Whatever it is, we're rooting for Jesus to take his place as the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the king of the Jews. Well, the word king of the Jews gets brought back up again. It gets brought up in chapter 27. Turn with me to chapter 27. That's where we're going to wind up today, where we're going to finish our time. It's expressed three more times, and these three expressions of the king of the Jews are going to be the three gifts that Jesus Christ wants to give you today. The first one we see in verse 11, he gave us freedom from self-defense, freedom from self-defense. Look at verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, that's Pontius Pilate, he's been arrested, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. Now the reason why Pilate asked him this is he's basically saying, So are you trying to get a revolution going here? Are you trying to overthrow the emperor because there's really only one king? Now, Jesus could have taken this time and said, hey, you know what? Trust me. I mean, you can look at my career. I just do miracles. I just do healings. I haven't preached against Rome. I even paid my taxes at one point. And and I'm not, my kingdom's not really of this earth. So I'm no threat to Rome. But that's not what Jesus does. What does Jesus say? Whatever you say, man. You're the one that said it, not me. It's because Jesus knows, one, that his destiny is to go to the cross. He knows that's what his mission on earth is to do. But two, he knows that the Lord will defend him, that God the Father will defend him and protect him. And you might say, well, he still got crucified. That didn't really work out, except that it did. Because after his death, he's in the ground for three days, and then he raises from the dead. He's vindicated by God because he's innocent. He trusts the Father to protect him. And today, if you're a believer in Jesus, you are free from self-defense. You don't have to defend yourself anymore. So if there's somebody at school who bullies you, picks on you all the time, you don't have to defend yourself against that person anymore. You can trust God to work. You can trust God to work. You don't have to snap at your spouse when your spouse pushes that one button that they always seem to know when and where to push it. You don't have to defend yourself there. You don't have to snap at that point. You don't have to argue with a coworker who's trying to use you as a rung on their ladder of success. You don't have to worry about how you're going to politically outmaneuver them because the Lord will defend you. And a lot of our time, a lot of our expertise 
that we have that we could use for glorifying God is spent, we spend a lot of mental energy trying to figure out how to protect ourselves, how to defend ourselves, how to make sure that we're still center of the universe. But if Jesus Christ is the one who's my defense and he's my only defense, that frees up a whole lot of mental energy for me to think about how I can use my gifts and my abilities to further his kingdom. The reason why many of us don't know how an accountant can bring glory to God in their workplace is because we don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Stop trying to defend yourself and think about how it is that your career, your work, your role in society might bring glory to God. So he gives us freedom from self-defense. He also gives us freedom from abuse. Freedom from abuse. Look at verse 27. Verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and they put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they took the reed, and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him again of the robe, and they put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. Jesus Christ is abused in these short verses in every possible way you can be abused. He's physically assaulted. He's emotionally and verbally abused, and they strip him naked. He's sexually abused as well, exposed, vulnerable. There are some of you in this room who are victims of abuse. You don't have to be enslaved to your abuser anymore. Jesus Christ takes this beating, takes this abuse to let you know that you can do what he wouldn't do. Jesus had all the power in the world to get up and walk away anytime he wanted, but he doesn't do it. But you, because of what Christ has done, are now free from abuse. You don't have to submit to it anymore. If you need help, you can come to the Next Steps room and you can talk to one of the pastors here, we want to help you. We want to set you free. Let 2018 be the last year that you fell under the spell of abuse. It's not your fault. You're a victim. And Jesus died to set you free from that. And if I may say, one of the greatest abusers that we have is not necessarily somebody else. It's often ourselves. We think to ourselves, if I was just a little thinner or a little bigger, people might like me better. If I didn't screw up all the time, I would be more successful. If I had a little bit more wealth, a little bit more achievement, and we just pile abuse on ourselves. People, you are free. Leave the beating behind. Stop beating yourself up. Jesus took this beating so you don't have to. We are free. We're free. And all that emotion, all that passion that you have that goes into beating yourself up or loathing and hating this person who is abusing you, you're now free to use that emotion, to use that power, to give glory to God on this journey of recovery that he wants to send you on. You're free. You're free. Lastly, he gives us freedom from indictment. He gives us freedom from indictment. Verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and they kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So in the Roman world, when you rebelled against them and they crucified you, they put a sign above your head to let everybody know whether they knew you or not, to let them know what it is that you did. Jesus didn't really do anything wrong, so they just tossed something above him that said the king of the Jews. And they wrote it in three languages so that everybody knew. 
all of us have an indictment or a charge above our head. And it's not from somebody else. It's not from another person. It's not from ourselves. It's from God himself. Because we have all done things that have violated the commands of God. We've all done things that have broken his commandments. And so all of us, at one point or another, have a sign above our head that says exactly what we did. And God has the right to punish us for rebellion in the same way that the Romans punished people who rebelled against him. And our signs might read something like this, unfaithful spouse. Or it might read idol manufacturer and perpetuator of lies, gossip, and anger. Yours might read control freak. It might read self-appointed judge of others. And God, rather than executing us for what we have done against him, he does something more amazing. He sends Jesus, he sends his son to earth, and Jesus is standing before you today, and he's got his hand out, and he says, give me your sign. Give me your sign, I'm going to wear it. I'm going to put it above my head, and I'm going to die for your sign. Whatever it is you're guilty of before the Lord, I'm going to pay for it. You can give him your sign. You don't have to wear it anymore. You can be free. You can, be, you can let it go. All you have to do is trust in the work of Jesus Christ, and you'll take your sign. You don't pay for it. You don't have to pay for it anymore. You don't have to answer for it anymore. You can be free. You can stop trying to level it out by good works. You can be free. Jesus wants your sign. He wants the indictment that's against you. Give it to him. You can come and meet me in the next steps room and we can talk about how we can transfer that sign over to Jesus. We can do that today. Look, we all have gifts and talents and abilities that we can use to glorify God. And often we don't do it because we're enslaved to some fiction of control that we think we have. We want to keep ourselves at the center of the universe. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has set us free from all that. He's our defense. He set us free from abuse. And he's taken our signs. He's taken the indictment from us. If he hasn't done that for you today, you can do it today. Let's let 2019 be a year where we give our gifts, leverage them for the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has set us free from so much by dying for us and then raising to life again. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for not doing to us what we deserved, but instead you sent a substitute. You sent someone to take our sign from us. You sent someone to set us free from abuse. You set us free from needing to defend ourselves all the time. And so we are free. And for those of us who are not free, who are enslaved, imprisoned to something today, I pray that today would be a day of freedom. It would be a day that they look back and say, I'm free and I got set free that last Sunday of 2018. May it be the first Sunday of a new life for many. We love you. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.